might recall, and uh, I hope you do, but we spent a little bit of time over the past summer thinking about the life that God is seeking to give us now. And uh, you remember we saw that Jesus said, um, the enemy comes, the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy the life that God's trying to give us. But I have come, Jesus said, that you might have life and that you might have it abundantly. And so we were talking about this abundant life that the Lord wants to uh, give us. And it's a life of blessings. It's a life of grace that God gives us. It's a life of favors that he wants to do for us and, and so on. And we've looked at different aspects of that. And I think maybe a good summary of this is in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9 that tells us once you become a Christian, you're different, okay? You're different than you were before. And here's what uh, Peter says. You are a chosen race. You are a whole new race of people. Racism is a big issue, right? You are a spiritual race. You've transcended whatever nationality and all of that in order that we might become this new race, according to the Bible. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. Royal has to do with a king, right? And so we are priests of the Most High King, the King of Kings, of Jesus Christ, a royal priesthood. Remember we said a priest is somebody, anybody, who knows God and who knows people and stands between God and people to bring God to people and to bring people to God, okay? And that's the job of a priest. And the Bible says when you become a believer, that's who you and I are. We are a royal priesthood, a priest on behalf of the King of Kings, of Jesus Christ. You are a holy nation. A holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Now, why does God do all this? Why does God call us to himself, bless us, put Jesus on the cross, forgive us, make us righteous? Peter goes on to say, uh, you are God's own possession so that you may proclaim the excellencies, so that you may brag on God. Proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into light, right? Why did God call us? So that we could proclaim the excellencies of this God. And he is excellent. He does everything excellently, right? And uh, once you were not a people, but now you're God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy and grace. What a great thing it is to be a believer, that's why Jesus came, that we might have this life. And uh, it's an abundant life. And so I try to think of an example in the Bible that might be an example for a person in the Bible, that might be an example for us of somebody who lived abundantly, okay? And uh, <clears throat> I wanted to uh, invite you to think with me this morning uh, about a guy in the Bible named Barnabas. I don't know how many of you are familiar with him. He's not real prominent in the Bible. He's not the Apostle Paul. He's not Peter. He's just Barnabas, okay? And uh, we meet him in Acts chapter 4. So if you have a Bible and you want to follow along, uh, in Acts chapter 4 is where we first meet uh, Barnabas. And um, let me just uh, read for you. Uh, a couple of verses here in uh, verse 36 uh, to start with. Uh, Thus Joseph, who was also called Barnabas by the apostles, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus. 
So first thing we learn about Barnabas is that Barnabas isn't his name, (laughs) right? Barnabas is a nickname based on his reputation. The apostles, the disciples, his friends, his church called him Barnabas because it means son of encouragement. Here is a guy whose life is obviously overflowing into other people's lives because the single most uh, spectacular thing about him is that he's an encourager. He gives encouragement wherever he goes. He's just, he's maybe got that gift of just being an encourager. People like to be around him because he's an encourager, you know? And so that's the first thing we learned about. He's got a nickname. And now, uh, you know, a reputation is a really important thing. And I just wanted to pause here to say, you know, uh, what's your reputation? Uh, As you you know, get closer and closer to the end of your life. When you come to the end of your life, what will people say is the single most important characteristic of your life? Your reputation. Well, this guy, Barnabas, because he had this life of Jesus in him, Jewish guy, you know, uh, he was from the tribe. The next thing we learn about him, he's from the tribe of uh, Levi. He was a Levite, and, you know, Levi and that whole tribe were all the priests, just like us. We're priests for God. We stand between God and people and to bring God and people together. And uh, he was that. He grew up in a family of priests and he was from the island of Cyprus. So he grew up on the island of Cyprus, which becomes significant in a minute, as you'll see. And, um, you know, I don't know, maybe he was a surfer. Maybe he sat on the beach, you know. I I don't know what he did, but uh, he grew up on an island and uh, that's kind of cool, I think. Um, So his name was really Joseph, but everybody called him Barnabas because it means son of encouragement. Next verse, verse 37. Barnabas sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Barnabas was generous. Barnabas was generous. When you have a life that's abundant, that's being fueled and given by God... You can afford to be generous. You can afford to give it away. You can afford to pass it on, right? Because why? Because the source of your life is God himself. You remember, uh, as we were studying this, I always get impressed with this, but it says that God deals with us, right, according to his riches. Not out of his riches. That's one thing. Take some money out of your riches and give it away, you know, or whatever. But when God deals with us according to his riches, I'm like, how rich is God? Well, he owns it all. And he deals with us when Jesus is the source of our life in such a way that we can afford to be generous. And so, you know, this is the very early part of the church, right? We're in the book of Acts. Uh, Luke wrote the gospel of Luke, and then he wrote Acts. And after Jesus came and after Jesus died and after Jesus was resurrected and so forth, well, the church started to develop, and Barnabas was a part of this in Jerusalem. And um, so in order to uh, you know, help the church along, he sells a field. And you could read the next chapter about some people who also sell uh, some stuff, but they don't give all the money, but they pretend they do, and what happens to them. And you can kind of read that, okay? Uh, but, uh, you know, we all need encouragement along the way, don't we? We all need encouragement from time to time. And uh, Barnabas was that kind of a guy who just was alert to other people's needs and uh, was able to uh, use what he had in order to advance and to help other people. Um, Now, 
I think the fact that uh, Barnabas is generous uh, with his money, uh, just want to pause there and think about this. I would suggest to you that being generous, the easiest part of being generous is giving money. That's what I would say. You might not agree with me, but I would say that's the easy part. Uh, I hope that you tithe. You know, you can't outgive God. There's a whole bunch of slogans and so forth that we could talk about here. That's not my intent. I'm just saying that money, like, for example, to give God time, I find more difficult than to give God money. Why? Well, I can always get more money. I could work a second job. I could uh, become the interim pastor at a church someplace. I could, you know... (laughs) can always get more money somehow. But you know what? Every one of us only has 168 hours of time a week. All of us have the same. You can't get any more of that. And you know, it's harder to give time because it's so limited. And so I say it's much easier to give money than it is to give time. But to be generous, um, you know, is more than money. Um, To be generous with love I mean, that's the bottom line in the Christian life is that we would love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength and love our neighbor as ourself. It's hard to be generous with love. How about being generous with the gifts that God has given us? You know, we've talked a little bit about this, that the abundant life has, God gives us each a gift and we use it in order to advance his purposes, his kingdom. Uh, you know, sometimes it's hard to uh, use your gift. Some people don't even like their gifts. You know, they're like, wish God gave me a different gift. I wish it could be like so-and-so instead of being me. I don't like my gift, you know. You know, well, sometimes it's, you know, God's got better ideas than we do. How about the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. When's the last time, you know, you just said, you know, I'm going to bring joy into that person's life somehow. I'm going to find a way to bring the joy of the Lord into the mess that that my neighbor is in or my relative is in and so forth. And I'm just going to share it. I'm just going to make, uh, what, I'm going to do whatever I have to do to just be generous with the joy that God has given me in order that I might share it with them. And so now while Barnabas is doing all of this in the early church and with Christians, so Jewish people mostly who are just coming to Jesus and there's a lot of you know, uh, tension, there's a lot of discussion going on and so forth. While Barnabas is doing all of this, the apostle Paul is doing everything he can to destroy the church, right? You remember this, the apostle Paul is out to just, you know, do whatever he can to to get rid of the church. In uh, chapter 8 of Acts, in verse 3, it says, uh, Saul, uh, Paul was named Saul before he became Paul, and uh, Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Where are these Christians? I'm going to get them. They're, you know, messing up Judaism, and I'm going to grab them by the neck and throw them in jail and so forth. In chapter 9, the first couple of verses, Saul was breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord and went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any... uh, Jews, you know, belonging to the way, which it got to be called, uh, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashes and so forth. And Paul, with all this, you know, trying to destroy the church, gets converted. He becomes a Christian. He begins to have the scales lifted off his eyes. He sees who Jesus actually is. Uh, And so, 
in uh, Acts chapter 9 and uh, verse uh, 21 or so, uh, Paul, after he's converted, uh, says, uh, 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 verse 20, says, immediately uh, Paul proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying, he's the son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and they said, you know, isn't this the guy that, you know, made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for the same purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priest? But Saul increased all the more in strength, and he confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ or the Messiah that the Jews were waiting for. So, get a, I mean, gets, get a load of this, right, Paul? He like, he's, he's trying to destroy the church. He's doing everything he can to get rid of Christianity. And then he meets the Lord. You can read about it in Acts chapter 9. He tells about his whole conversion experience, what happens to him and so forth. And immediately he starts to preach, starts to proclaim the excellencies of the God who stopped him in his tracks and turned him around. Now, Paul was, you know, the Pharisee of Pharisees. He was like the top-ranked Judaism kind of guy. And uh, he wasn't going to let Judaism just go south uh, because of Jesus and so forth. And so anyway, um, Paul's got this really you know, bad reputation, and uh, he starts preaching Jesus, but the Jewish people are like, you know, I don't know that we can trust this guy. I think he might be setting us up. He might just be trying to find out who's going to come out of the woods so that he can take us down to Jerusalem and throw us in prison and so forth. And so you got to love this. They, you know, I don't have time to read all of it, but uh, they decide to kill Paul. They're going to take him and get rid of him, the Jews, all right, because he's being a menace here. So he escapes, right, goes down to Jerusalem, and he's going to go talk to the main disciples, the Peter, John, you know, uh, guys, the, the main guys. And uh, in verse 26 and, and 27, uh, here's kind of what happens. He goes down to Jerusalem, right, and um, Barnabas, uh, I'm getting ahead of myself. I'm in the wrong uh, chapter. Sorry about that. But in... Um, Acts chapter uh, 9, verse 26 and 27, uh, look what happens here. Uh, When he came to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, right? He's getting thrown out of town where he was, and he goes down to Jerusalem to hang out with uh, the main disciples, and uh, they were all afraid of him. (laughs) Peter, Jimmy, Johnny. What's the deal? He was converted. He's a Christian now. Right? They were afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. (laughs) Now, you got to love this. This is the best verse. But Barnabas, Barnabas, our man Barnabas, took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. Barnabas comes to his side. The Apostle Paul, the great Apostle Paul. I wonder if we'd have a great Apostle Paul if it weren't for Barnabas. Right? If you think about it, uh, the great Apostle Paul, the disciples are all afraid of him, but Barnabas, you know, sees in Paul something that the more prominent disciples don't see, and Barnabas wasn't willing to just go along with the crowd. He wasn't willing to just let fear dictate what's going to happen to Paul. And uh, Barnabas, with the courage of his conviction, stands with Paul, even if it's going to hurt his own reputation. 
Imagine, you got the whole church. Somebody, some bad number in Ridgefield comes to Jesus and comes to church on Sunday morning. And we're all like, you know, "Ah, I'll trust this guy. We're all like, ah, we're just going to wait and see what happens if this is real. But somebody out of the crowd has to come alongside and say, you know, if you're going to live a Barnabas kind of life and say, I got your back. I'll go to bat for you. Yeah, you're a brand new believer. You don't know squat. But you know what? I see that God is drawing you to himself. And, you know, I started where you are, and I can show you how I got to where I'm at, and there's other people here who can show you how to go even further. And, and so, you know, when we're all in this together and we're all encouragers and we're looking for ways to encourage each other, uh, it becomes a huge issue. Barnabas has the courage of his own convictions. And I want to say, you know, the abundant life enables us to take risks sometimes. To take risks. Uh, and, and not to be afraid. Um, I think sometimes we need to be able to see, not just with the eyes of our heads, but with the eyes of our heart. Paul says in Ephesians, you know, that he's going to open the eyes of our hearts. Because there's more to Christianity than just living out of our heads and reasoning, as important as that is, and filling our minds with the truth of God. There's also the heart where the spirit of God comes to dwell. And from time to time, you know, I think God calls us to take a risk. And so Barnabas is saying to Paul, listen, I got your back. I believe in you. Um, Others might be skeptical. Others might just say, you know, I'm just going to wait and see. Uh, But Barnabas says to Paul, I'm all in. And uh, I think, you know, have you ever needed somebody to be a Barnabas to you? Have you ever done something, you know, out in left field someplace or dumb or, you know, whatever? Remember I told you when I was first a pastor, I went and bought the church a house with no money. And I said, hey, church, have I got great news for you? You just bought a house. And I thought, you know, they'd be all excited. It didn't turn out that way. However, there were four men who were Barnabases in that church. And those four guys got together, put up the money, and bought the house out of their own retirement funds, saving funds, or whatever. They saved my neck. They were Barnabases. They're like, they knew I was trying to do the right thing. I just didn't know what I was doing. And they came along, and they were such an encouragement because they saw the situation for what it was, and so they did that. And I thought, you know, to ask the question, have you noticed, like, through your lifetime as you look back, that, that the Lord puts a Barnabas in your life every once in a while when you really need it? You know? I used to, uh, at Thanksgiving time, try to figure out who's the best Barnabas to my life this past year and write him a thank you note just to say thanks for stepping in. You know? And then I think, listen, who do you know around you that could really use some encouragement? Who do you know that, you know, could could be really blessed by the Lord's encouragement through you. How many people, you know, are lonely and so forth? And I, I, you know, I have no idea who this is going to be, but pretty soon we're going to have a new pastor. And I can assure you, he's going to need a Barnabas or two every once in a while, right? Especially if he's young, which we want, right? On the younger side and so on. And so 
Uh, it's such a, you know, this life that God has given us, this abundant life. Um, the next thing uh, to know, um, wouldn't you know it, the gospel spreads because of Barnabas and Paul and so forth. And uh, the gospel starts to spread outside of the Jewish crowd. All of a sudden, there's, there's some Gentile people who are coming to Jesus and um, you can read about how it spread in Acts chapter 11. Peter is defending how the Lord spoke to him, and he started it. And then um, you can read how you know some Jews, remember the very first martyr of Christianity was Stephen. And when Stephen got martyred, uh, a bunch of Jewish people said, I'm getting out of town because I'm next, you know, kind of thing. And so they went all over the place. And most of them just spoke to Jewish people about Jesus. But some of the people, one of them from Cyprus, the Bible says, started talking to Gentile people. And all of a sudden, Antioch, which isn't too far from Jerusalem, became sort of a center of Gentile Christianity. And all of a sudden, you got two parties in the church. You got the Gentile believers, and you got the Jewish believers. And if you go back to Acts chapter 6, their widows were all together and they were trying to feed the widows, you remember? And they have to get deacons because the Jewish people were taking care of it and they were getting more food than the Gentile crowd. And all of a sudden we got this thing going on in the church. That's still going on. Right? And so you start to read this and you see how it's spread. And Antioch becomes this sort of center of the non-Jewish Church and Jerusalem is sort of the center of the early church. And uh, here's what happens in um, chapter 11 and verse 21. Um, the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. And the report of this, these Gentile people, this great number of Gentile people, came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch to check it out. Why Barnabas? Well, I would say if we live an abundant life that God came to give us, number one, we're going to be theologically astute. We're going to be able to discern, you know, what's right and what's wrong theologically that God has revealed to us through his word. And, uh, of course, Barnabas is schooled uh, in the whole Old Testament that, that uh, the Jewish people had for their scriptures and so forth. And so they send Barnabas off because he's an encourager, right? Um, and so this great number of people come. They send Barnabas to check it out. And when Barnabas came, next verse, and when Barnabas came and saw that the grace of God had come upon these people, the grace. Isn't that your favorite theological doctrine? Grace. God's favor that we don't deserve, right? Um, God's riches at Christ's expense. Grace. And so um, they send Barnabas down to check it out. Uh, I think he's theologically astute. And when he came, he saw the grace of God. He was so glad. And he exhorted those people to remain faithful to the Lord and steadfast in their purpose. What was their purpose? Proclaim the excellencies of the God who gives you this grace and this life, this eternal life that overcomes everything. And... Uh, you know, Barnabas is the right guy to send. And then here's where the next verse, uh, we learn the most about Barnabas, right? Uh, verse 24 says, for Barnabas was a good man, had a good reputation. Barnabas was a good man. What does it mean to be a good man? 
I would suggest to you that a good man is a man that's filled with the fruits of the spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. You know, a good man. Barnabas was a good man. Second thing it says in verse 24, uh, he was a good man full of the Holy Spirit. Full of the Holy Spirit. Now, we talked about this, you know, that the way that Christ gives us his life is through uh, his spirit. And uh, full of the Holy Spirit, 15 times in the New Testament, it talks about being full of the Spirit. And we saw that being full of the Spirit is a command. It's not something God just automatically... God puts his Spirit in you, but for you to stay filled with that Spirit and live with that Spirit is up to us. It's a command in Ephesians 5.18, be filled with the Spirit of God. Um, And so I think about this. I, I would suggest to you there's at least, there's more... But there's at least three habits that will keep us filled with the Holy Spirit, okay? Three habits. Number one, um, we have to spend time every day with the Lord. And we have to do two things, just like when we're with anybody else. We have to listen, and we get that from his word. We have to read his word and listen for his spirit to teach us what he wants to teach us. And we have to speak back to him in prayer. We have to spend some time. Even if you start with just a little time, I, I, what happened to me started with a little time and then it, it becomes rich and you enjoy it so much that you just, all of a sudden more time has gone by than you've allotted. But you have to spend time on a regular basis. I say daily time with the Lord. Second, I think on a weekly basis, you have to spend some time with his people. You have to come to church. I could go through the scriptures and kind of point some of that out, but um, we have to go to a picnic and hang out and talk about real things and about spiritual things. And because we're encouraged, we have to get in a small group. We have to serve some, some way in which we can serve together and be an encouragement and hold each other accountable and get to know each other on more than just a surface level. We have to, the Bible calls it fellowship, you know? It's a... Uh, funny word, but uh, I think the, the concept, if we want to stay filled with the Spirit, why? You know, this is the simplest thing in the world, because where does the Holy Spirit live? In other people, right? You can come to this church at night and just look around. You won't find the Holy Spirit here. The Holy Spirit lives in the people. And so when we hang around with other people and we have these significant discussions, the Holy Spirit can speak to us. And the third habit, I would say, is tithing. I would say, you know, the first thing you want to do as a new Christian is get baptized. The second thing you want to do is start tithing. You know why? Because the Bible said, Jesus said, where your treasure is, your heart will be. Where your treasure is, your heart will be. So I say the first 10%, and I think it's real important, that's first. I want to say, God, you're first in my life. And I'm counting on you to help me with the rest of it. You know, three simple habits. There's more that we could talk about and so forth. But if we want to stay filled with the spirit of God, those are three just simple habits. It's not like magic and, you know, some kind of special ceremony and so forth. Anyway, the church exploded with non-Jewish people. The church in Antioch now, that's where they are. And uh, Jewish people have, uh, you know, a great advantage when they become Christians over non-Jewish people. Wouldn't you agree? Jewish people have the whole Testament. They know about creation. They know about the promise that God made to Abraham. 
they can understand, they can put the whole world together and say, oh, I know what's going on in the world. I know what the background to the foreground of just living everyday life is. The Jewish people are, you know, they have all of this stuff. When a Jewish person comes to Christ, it's just like great because all of a sudden a light goes on and everything ties together and they get it. And so Gentile people are in the dark. They don't have any of that. So now you got the church exploding with Gentile people And the first thing that has to happen is these people have to learn. They have to learn where they came from. They have to learn who God is. They have to learn about Jesus and the cross. They have to learn. They have to get some knowledge about God, right? And and why is that? You all remember because we saw in John chapter 15 that Jesus said, listen, the more you know, the more you'll love The more you get to know about God, I promise you, the more you'll love him. And the more you love him, the more you'll obey him. And the more you obey him, the more you'll abide in him. And the more you abide in him, the more fruit your life will bear. Because you're the branch, he's the vine, the sap produces the fruit, and so on. The more you abide, the more fruitful you'll be. The more fruitful you'll be, the more you'll be bragging on God for his excellencies. That's what Jesus taught in John chapter 15. So what does Barnabas do? He's like, I got to go find Paul. He's like, I got to get a teacher in here. I got to get somebody to help me. The church is exploding with people who have no background. They don't have a clue about anything. I got to go find Paul. So he goes, finds Paul. They get together, and they teach in this church for a year together. Okay? And, um, you know, it's, it's kind of neat. It's like Barnabas said, you know what? I got to get some staff. And, uh, and then, you know, oh, man, um, sorry, let me see what I can skip here. From, from, it's kind of a significant thing that happens here. Um, the church in Antioch gets together and he says, we're going to send Paul and Barney on a missionary trip. We want everybody to know that's God's plan, right? That all the peoples of the earth will be blessed by the descendant of Abraham, who is Jesus. And now that we know who he is and we know what it's about, we want everybody to know. So we're going to send them on a missionary trip. Where do they go? Cyprus. <laughs> Barnabas is like, you know, I want to go to my people. I got a lot of relatives over there on the island, and I got, you know, some friends over there, and I had people that, you know, need to know this. Let's go there. So Barnabas and Paul, they go over there, and uh, they go all around the island. They preach the gospel and so forth. They get all the way almost done, and they come back, and they come into this magician a magician, a psychic kind of person, magician. And you can read about the encounter there in Acts chapter 13. And, uh, you know, uh, Paul, he's just like, this magician is trying to uh, negate the message. He's trying to uh, get in the way and trying to, you know, they're naysaying Barnabas and, and Saul. Uh, but Saul, who was all, all, also called uh, Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at this magician And in verse 10 of chapter 13, he says, you son of the devil. You son of the devil. Paul's like right in his face, you know. You enemy of all righteousness, full of deceit and villainy. Will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? You know, it just takes him on, nose to nose. I mean, that's Paul, right? Barnabas is probably thinking, well, you know, I know this guy. He's one of my cousin's relatives. Da, 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 da. You know, right? Take it easy, Paul, you know, and so forth. And, uh, 
But uh, that's not what happens. Paul takes them on. And of interest is that from this point on, it's no longer Barnabas and Paul, but it's Paul and Barnabas. Right? From this point on, why? Because these guys have different gifts. They have different ways of looking at things. They have different approaches to problems and so forth. And so Paul just takes it on. He's got the gift of leadership and uh, not so much maybe the gift of encouragement, right? And, uh, you know, so they just, they, they have this thing. And then um, in Acts chapter 15, uh, there's a, a challenge, the Jewish side of the church comes with a challenge and says to the Gentile side of the church, you cannot be a Christian, you cannot be saved until you're circumcised, like Moses circumcised all of us. Wow, now that's a controversy, right? And so I find out, you know, nobody knows quite what to do if people start arguing about this and so on. And, and the very first church council, what does a church do when they have an issue like that? Well, they had a church council. They go down to Jerusalem, and they have this big powwow meeting, and they try to decide, you know, what's going to happen and so forth, and they all come to an agreement, and, uh, and then finally, um, you know, uh, the Jerusalem church is sort of the mother church, and so finally they all agree after arguing for quite a long time. You can read about it in Acts chapter 15. Everybody agrees. They write a letter. They send it off with Barnabas and Paul and a couple other guys, and uh, right there, uh, while they're in Jerusalem, they pick up John Mark. And uh, John Mark is the same Mark who wrote the Gospel of Mark. And so Paul and Barnabas pick up John Mark, and, uh, you know, uh, they go back to Antioch. And, uh, you, know, uh, you know, some of us, in, in verse, let me just uh, read this, and then I'll stop. But in uh, chapter 15... Um, they have this Jerusalem council, right? And uh, they all get together. They write this letter and, and so on. And, uh, and then uh, they go back and w- look what happens here. After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, I'm reading from uh, verse 36. And uh, Paul says to Barnabas, let's go back and visit all the churches that we shared the gospel in in every city and uh, check out and see how they're doing. Now, Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. Bar- Barnabas, is son of encouragement, wants to take John Mark along. Well, what's the issue here? Well, John, previously, at the first uh, time around, uh, John Mark bailed, and the Apostle Paul said, he's done. You let me down. You failed. You're out. So look what, look what happens here. Uh, Barnabas wanted to take with them John, who's called Mark, and uh, Paul thought it best not to take them uh, who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not uh, gone with them to do the work. And there arose such a sharp disagreement between Barnabas and Paul that they separated from each other. Now, (laughs) these are two Christian leaders. These are two heavy hitters, right? Some people look at this and they say, this is terrible. Two Christian leaders and they can't get along. Other people look at this and they say, this is wonderful. Now we got two teams going on missions trips instead of just one. They didn't split, they multiplied. You know, and you can see the hand of God and how it all came about maybe isn't the smoothest or the way we would like it, but all of a sudden, you know. And then uh, Paul goes off with Silas and he meets this guy, Timothy. And with this, I'm done. Um, Timothy is the product of a mixed marriage. 
okay? So Timothy, uh, his mother and his grandmother are solid believers. They raised him. The father is not Jewish. He's a Greek, right? A Hellenist, uh, he would be called. And so Timothy was never circumcised. So Paul wants to take young Timothy, who's a real solid believer, on his missionary journey to help him, okay? And, uh, you know, uh, the very first thing Paul does is he circumcises him. And I say to myself, Paul, you just went down to Jerusalem and we had this big council and this big meeting. We have these official papers and we decided that you're not going to, you know, add to the gospel. You know what? Adding to the gospel ruins it. Did you know that? You know, imagine some, there's some artists in here. Imagine they paint this really great painting and you get it home and you get it on your wall and you're sitting there looking at it and you decide, you know what? I'm going to add to that. What do you do? You ruin it. True? So here's God. He's got this really great gospel. It's perfect in every way. It's excellent in every way. And we're going to add to it. You just have to get circumcised and then you'll be okay. The gospel plus circumcision, then you'll be okay. Or the gospel plus what? Sacraments. Or the gospel plus behavior. Or the gospel plus keeping the law. The whole book of Galatians is written about that issue. And so So uh, all that to say that every once in a while, you know, a church will have a policy that we've all agreed on, kind of like the Jerusalem Council. And then the leaders of the church will do something like Paul did and go outside of the policy for some reason that they know that we don't know. And they make an exception. And we step back and we look at that and we say, what a bunch of hypocrites those leaders are. But perhaps Paul, and you can look this up, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul had maybe a higher absolute in which he said, I'm going to become all things to all people in the hopes of winning some. I'm going to do what I have to do in order. And so Paul... I don't think he was afraid of the Jewish people, but in order to keep them quiet, had Timothy circumcised. It just looks like it's so hypocritical. And I could go on. At the end of his life, if you read 2 Timothy and Colossians, Paul's in prison, and he writes to the church at Colossae, and he says, can you send John Mark? And then Timothy says, can you get John Mark and bring him to me because... He'd be useful to me in ministry. It sounds like Paul had a real change of heart. Anyway, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for the Bible. I mean, how would we know how to think if it wasn't for you teaching us and helping us to know you and know your ways and to see these uh, people that you use, Barnabas and Paul and all the others in the scriptures, Father, none of them were perfect. If we had time, we could go to Galatians chapter 2 and see where this surf, this issue surfaces again in the church and how even Barnabas, Father, was led astray by uh, fear of the Jewish side of the church. And so help us to learn the lessons that you want us to learn. Help us to see clearly the the way that your spirit works in us and desires to work in us. And uh, we just thank you, Father, again, for your truth in Jesus' name. Amen.